0: How are we all doing this morning? Doing okay? Yeah. I have to tell you, last night, having never uh, shared here before at a man camp, I was watching the dim lights during worship, and I don't know how your eyes are, but I'm, I'm almost 50, and I, I find my eyes a little bit weaker than they used to be, and I'm thinking, man, I'm not convinced I can see my notes if they have the lights down that low. So, T-Mac, thank you for hooking me up and bringing some light to me. Thank you very much. If you have your Bibles, we're going to continue our journey. I'd like to turn to Genesis again. If you remember, we laid out kind of a a four-part series. We're going to do another installment, obviously, this morning. But we talked about Patient Zero last night, dealing with the issue of sin, of where the brokenness in our world finds its origin, all the way back in the pages of Genesis 1 and 2. What I'd like to do here is now talk about the ultimate cure. And if you remember from last night, You know, we left in some ways with kind of bad news. There was not a lot of hope last night except for one glimmer of chapter 3, verse 21, that God is going to provide one to die in the place of the one who is deserving of death in the clothing of these animal skins. What I'd like to do is look again at chapters 1 and 2, but from a different angle. Here's the beauty of our Bible. It is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God, having sat under the authority of the word, may be prepared for every good work. And so what what I think is a helpful thing is to look at a passage and then turn it and look at it another way. Turn it and look at it another way because what you're going to find is whether you've um, turned to Genesis for the first time in your life Or whether you've studied Genesis all your life, God has little nuggets for us in his word. And so I want to sort of walk through it from a little bit of a different perspective. If you were to take 66 books of the Bible and just summarize them, gross overgeneralization, it would be basically creation, fall, redemption, consummation. This idea of God created and life is awesome in your Bible for like two chapters Wheels come off the fall of chapter 3. God spends the entire rest of your Bible from Genesis 3.15 onward showing you the plan of redemption, 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 ultimately concluding in the consummation of all things under the Lordship of Christ. And so that's the sort of the flow of our Bible and what makes the good news of the gospel. And if you've uh, been around church or, or maybe if you're new to it, the term gospel, as I mentioned last night, simply means good news. And the only way or the only reason, really, the good news is good is because we juxtapose it by what is bad news. And that bad news we covered thoroughly last night. In chapter 1, though, verse 1, we mentioned last night, in the beginning, God created. I didn't get into the weeds of this, but chapter 1, verse 1, is full of all kinds of theological um, insights. That you have a time, person, force, matter creation that we did not evolve, Uh, we are not the result of the Big Bang and a bunch of genetic mutation, you are not an oops, no. In the beginning, God created, and he shaped us in verse 2. It says, the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the spirit of the deep, uh, and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. It's worth noting in verse 2 that you get sort of our first glimpse into this concept of our triune God. One of the most confusing things uh, as a new believer and even as a pastor today is trying to explain the idea that our God is a triune God, one God in three persons, not one God who reveals himself in three different ways, one God in three distinct persons, yet fully uniquely God. And in verse two, you see that God is there in the beginning. God creates. And yet you see in verse two that the spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep. And uh, it's also worth noting that with that in mind, in John 1 and Colossians 1, it actually says that Jesus is the agent of creation. So listen to John 1 just for a moment, but stay in Genesis uh, chapter 2, or chapter 1. rather. Here's John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, Him being Jesus, and nothing uh, came into being apart from Him. Colossians 1 says that in Jesus... All things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible. So in Genesis 1-1, God creates. The Spirit of God is present in chapter 1, verse 2. Yet the New Testament says Jesus is the agent of creation. So either Jesus is fully God and our God is one God in three persons, where the Bible contradicts itself. And what we see is this triune relationship of love. The reason that's significant is we serve a God who is a self-giving, intimate, loving relationship. And as the Father enjoys beautiful relationship with Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, He invites us into that same relationship as well. And you get the picture in verse two that the Spirit of God, my Bible says, is hovering over the Spirit of the deep. Does your say anything different than that? Verse two. What's your say? Hovering over the surface of the waters. Anybody got anything else? It's the idea of uh, nesting. Who's our guys here who have infants at home? Yeah? Okay. So did you, is this your first kid, by the way? Okay. Did something happen to your wife when she found out she was pregnant? (laughs) Well, a lot of things happened, not the least of which is she kept telling you no, but besides that, so did she she all of a sudden start looking for a nursery in the house, and now all of a sudden you're running to Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever, you're spending all kinds of money on Amazon buying stuff, building out this nursery, you got to get the right you know, crib, and you got to get the special rocker, and you got to get the, you know, the warmer and for the wipes, and you got to get the changing table. Like, all of a sudden, you're nesting. You're creating this crib, if you will, for this infant. That That's the picture in verse 2, is God is saying, man, I'm doing something pretty awesome, and I want to shape this thing for this special treasure that's coming. But that treasure in the creation account in chapter 1 is not found In day one, with light and darkness, or in day two, with the sea and the sky, or in day three, with the fertility of the earth, or with day four, with the light of day and night, or with day five, with the creatures and the water and the air. No, it's actually found in day six of creation, with the creation of mankind, and that's the image bearer. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, he created the male and female. It's worth noting that in that Genesis 1, verse 26, do you notice the plurality language? Let us make man in our language. So why would God refer to himself as plurality unless he actually is plurality? Let us make man in our image. And so there's this beautiful picture of this image of God. But of course, as we noticed uh, last night, that that image of God comes in chapter 3 to be defaced and it's defaced by sin. It's not erased. It's simply marred. And in Acts 17, in fact, when the Apostle Paul is standing uh, in Athens at the Areopagus, he says this, that God, who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he need anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God if perhaps they may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and exist. And some of your own poets, quoting the poets of their day, say, for we are also his children. There's this beautiful picture that God has created mankind to live in a relationship with God, to be invited into the beautiful triune relationship of oneness with the God who created us. So as we close chapter 1, a couple implications. There is a God. We have a beginning and an end. We are created in his image. And the true purpose and joy and beauty and meaning in life is not to be lived apart from him, but to be lived with him. And then something happened. Something happened where mankind decided to go at it on their own. And we saw the tragedy of sin here last night, that a finite, temporal, created being said to an infinite, sovereign, almighty God, thank you for your input, but I've got this. Proverbs remind us in Proverbs 14 that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And many of us have experienced what that actually looks like and unfortunately feels like where you tried to go at life on your own and uh, found that uh, there's nothing on your own that can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul because you are created in the image of God. And to live outside of relationship with him is to live outside of your design. So with all that in mind, we summarize with the idea that we are sinners both by deed and by nature. And that, as Romans puts it in chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through sin, or excuse me, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That there is a common thread that we all share, diverse as we might be, unique as we all might be, that common thread is theologically what's called imputation. So what happened when Adam and Eve sinned is all of humankind followed in their rebellion to God, and the wages of sin is death, and that imputation of sin was on us. His sin became ours, which means we bear the mark of guilt, and no human effort can assuage that guilt whatsoever. The only hope we have is a divinely divinely provided sacrifice. Now, we have worked really, really hard to explain it away. We've tried to minimize the depth of sin. We've tried to compare with other guys that are seriously jacked up, like, well, at least I'm not like them. Uh, We've tried to be religious to cover our sin. We've tried to explain it away. But if we're gut-level honest, there is still something inside that is not right in us. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 38. There is no soundness in my flesh because of my sin. There is no health in my bones. That's the reality of life. Now, the reason I share that is when we talk about good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is we actually serve a God, if you remember the theme of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, that the rest of the Bible is God's loving pursuit of you and I. God does not abandon us. God does not leave us. In fact, God has provided a way for us by which we can be brought back and have that image of God restored into what it was meant to be, that God pursues and loves us and we're never too far from him. It's never too much sin for him. In fact, he recognizes, according to Romans 3.23, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, yes, the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2 put it this way, that we were all, all of us, dead in our transgressions and sins, in which we formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. God, even knowing all of that, meets us and pursues us. Now, stay with me for just a second, because for some of you who are here, you've never trusted Christ. You've never maybe even heard or understood the gospel. And I'm hoping as we sort of walk through this that you're gonna begin to understand not only who you are on the inside, but the invitation of God to be transformed by the gospel. But the tendency when you talk about the gospel is guys who've been around the church think, well, I've already kind of been there, done that. I've already checked that box as if the gospel is a box to be checked, as if the gospel and our need for ongoing embracing of the gospel is somehow past tense. So even though for those of you who have not trusted Christ, this might be new, and for those who know Jesus, this might be repetitive, this is the most important thing any human can ever hear in their entire life. And it's not because I'm saying it, certainly not. It's because it's what the Word of God invites us into. And that is this. There is a God who not only provided an animal sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 but provided the lamb of God who wouldn't just cover the sins of the world but takes them away. See from Genesis 3:21 the pattern of shedding of innocent blood to cover sin is brought into the biblical picture. And you can trace that pattern all the way throughout your Old Testament. By the way, right after Moses is given the Ten Commandments and the law of God, he's given the sacrificial system. So here's the way you're supposed to behave, and since I know you're not going to be able to, here's what you do when you screw it up. The Ten Commandments and the law of God was never meant to be a moral standard that we ascended to in our flesh. It was meant to be a revealing that we can't ascend to that in our flesh, and therefore God says, here's the sacrifices. So if you've ever read through the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, the first I don't know, 10 or so chapters is how to offer an offering for this and for this and for this. And so you kill a goat and then you kill a pigeon and then you kill a cow and then you kill a ram and then you kill a this and then you kill a. Why, do, why are all of these animals dying? Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. So that pattern in the Old Testament picture, it's called atonement. In the Old Testament, the animal sacrifice never dealt with the root issue of sin. It just covered it. Like if any of you have daughters who get a zit, They're like, oh, gosh. And so they go get some makeup thing and they cover it up. Now, you can't see the zit, but the zit is still very much present. All that atoning did was covered it. And it never dealt with the root issue. It just covered it up, much like religion of fig leaves in the Garden of Eden covered it up. The significance of that is when Jesus comes on the scene, something very different is said about Jesus. The disciples of John see Jesus coming, and they say, behold, the Lamb of God Who what? For those of you who remember this part of your Bible, who what? Takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't cover it. Now, for a Jewish listener, they would have been, what do you mean take away? Because for centuries now, we haven't taken away anything. We just keep offering over and over and over. Read the book of Hebrews talking about that, over and over and over offering sins. But Jesus died once for all. And he doesn't just cover sin. He takes it away. He deals with the root issue of sin. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 3:15, the singular male pronoun he who would crush Satan's head. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 3:21, the one who would die as the innocent in our place. And he doesn't just cover, he takes away. Let me read you a couple of passages that speak of this good news of what Jesus did and why he is so essential and he singular. There is not multiple roads to heaven. This is not a choose-your-own-adventure book. You can't recalculate your own route. There is a point A, and there is a point B, and there is only one way. Jesus puts it this way in John 14. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I can remember living in a little roach-infested apartment in Fresno. Still had not trusted Christ and a guy had given me a Bible and dared me to read it. And he said, I dare you to read the Gospel of John. I'm like, all right, whatever. And I remember getting to chapter 14, verse 6, and I'm thinking, that's pretty arrogant. You know, you see the guy who scores the touchdown, and he's just pointing to the back of his own jersey? Like, that's super arrogant. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. It's arrogant unless you're God. And so Jesus is, like, calling the shot here. And the significance of it is Jesus is essential. Listen to a couple of these passages, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things uh, on earth or things in heaven. You're going to notice a consistent theme of the blood of the cross, which sounds disgusting until you remember the pattern. The biblical pattern is without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The biblical pattern is the wages of sin is what? Death. And so uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us while we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ, He raised us up. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. In Christ, First Peter three eighteen. For Christ suffered for the for our sins, uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, having put to death in the fl- having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So that term imputation means that Adam's sin was imputed onto us, whether you liked it or not. And then when you trust in Jesus Christ, another imputation occurs. And what happens there is when we trust in Jesus Christ, my sin is given to Jesus. His righteousness is given to me. And having believed by faith in what he has done for me, I am declared righteous. Now let me talk a little bit about imputation. Do any of you have college students right now, like kids that you're supporting through college? I would imagine I'm about to send my oldest to college, and so this is what I'm expecting. So, fellas who've been down the show, tell me if I'm right or not. There's going to come a point in time where there's going to be too much month at the end of her check, and she's going to call me, Hey, Dad, hey, thinking about you, just wanted to check in. I'm like, okay, you need some money. And she's going to need a little bit of money. And I'm, I'm going to pull up the app on my phone, and I'm going to take money from my account that I've worked hard to earn, and I'm going to slide it to her account, that she didn't do jack to earn. And I'm going to impute that money to her account. She's going to be watching on her phone, and she's going to go from broke to having a little bit of money because of what I did on her behalf. Is that going to happen, fellas who have college students? It only happens a 100 times. Perfect. Here's the good news. In Christ, it only has to happen once. Because what happens is when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you finally come to the realization that you are dead in your transgressions and sins. That, uh, you know, they say, if King Midas, everything he touched turns to gold, everything we touch turns to ashes. Because in our flesh, there is nothing we can do to earn the favor of God. And when you finally embrace Jesus Christ, your sin is transferred to his account, his righteousness one time is transferred to your account, and you are now declared, according to Romans 5, 1, righteous. Therefore, having... Believed by faith in Jesus, we are declared righteous. Now, it doesn't mean we are righteous. Don't miss that. So for those of you who are like, well, I'm not going to trust Christ because all of Christians are hypocrites. Yeah, we got room for one more, bro. Because there is never a promise biblically that you would live in perfection. We'll talk more about that tonight. But there is a promise that you will be declared righteous before God. Apart from Jesus Christ, what God sees is a man created in his image, marred by sin, deserving of the wrath of God and death. But when you trust in Jesus Christ, what God sees is a man who has humbled himself before Christ and his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, has been imputed to your account. So when God sees you in Christ, he sees Christ. And when God sees you without Christ, he sees you. And there is nothing good in you that is in your flesh. For even the willing is present in you, but the doing of the good is not. And so this is the good news. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 64. He says, look, all of us have become like one who is unclean. For all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquity like the wind takes us away. So here's the thing about understanding the gospel. The greatest thing you can know about the gospel if you have yet to trust Christ is you don't have to try out, you don't have to audition, you don't have to pass the test, you don't have to qualify in an interview. You simply receive by grace what he offers you freely, which is to bring you back into right alignment with the God who created you in the first place of no merit of your own. It's his provision in his provision alone. Beautiful picture. And so the thing with this uh, gospel, though, is, is uh, I can't receive it for you, nor can your buddy. You have to personally appropriate Christ. Now, without getting into the weeds theologically, be encouraged. Uh, God is at work to willing to work for his good pleasure, and if you feel your heart being stirred by the Lord, Uh, recognize that you need to personally appropriate Christ. Here's what John chapter 1 says. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Meaning, association at man camp is good, but it won't save you. Marrying a girl who goes to church is good, but it won't save you. Going to church yourself is good, but it won't save you. You have to receive Christ the Lord. He says, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. It means that there's a moment where you confess and believe, where you recognize, like I did, my my, uh, night where I trusted Christ was March twenty third, 1993. And I went for terrible food, as I mentioned, and I heard the gospel. And I remember they they had the whole every head bowed, every eye closed thing. I'm like, oh, man, here it comes. And he said, if you want to trust Christ, you just raise your hand. I remember thinking, man, if I raise my hand right here, by the way, the raising of the hand didn't save me. The raising of the hand acknowledged what God had already been doing in my heart in that moment. And I remember thinking, man, if these people who were sitting next to me knew about me, what I knew about me, they'd throw me out of here. And by the grace of God, I raised my hand and trusted Christ. Romans puts it this way, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you will be saved. For in the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, with the mouth they confess, resulting in salvation. By grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. Now, for some of you guys, you're like, yeah, dude, I've been about this for a long time. I go, yeah, but some guys have never heard this. Never heard that it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not as a result of work so that you would boast. They've never heard the idea that God saved you not on the basis of deeds that you have done in righteousness, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And God wants to invite you fellows back into a right relationship with the one who created you. That's the gospel. The rest is up to you. See, we can present the truth, but you've got to decide what you want to do with Jesus. Jesus. You've got to decide if your life lived on your own is providing for you what you thought it would. So here's the thing about sin, by the way. In Genesis 3, uh, verse 5, Satan says to Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat from this tree, meaning on the day that you disobey God and try to go at it on your own, you're going to be like God, and you're going to realize you don't need him. And sin, by the way, always over-promises and under-delivers because they were told they'd be like God. Next thing you know, they realize their nakedness. They're hiding from the almighty, sovereign, omniscient God. And they realize that they didn't, get ex- they didn't get at all what they were promised. And some of you are living that right now. So, look, if you've never trusted Christ, man, the good news is he is there, ready to embrace you. And you say, yeah, but how do I know? Like, how do I know? Have you ever wondered that? Like, how do I know that I know that I know that I know that I know? One of the first verses I ever put to memory was this one because I can tell you what, I came to faith from a pretty dark background, and I needed some assurance, man. Because if there was a possibility theologically that you can lose your salvation, I'm fairly confident I had. Thanks be to God, that's actually not a possibility because your salvation wasn't dependent on you to begin with. But John tells us in in, uh, 1 John chapter 5, it says, This is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and the life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's pretty definitive, right? He says, I write these things for those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so that offer is there for you. Let me close by finishing and talking a little bit about those who have already trusted Christ. Here's the thing about the gospel that I am coming to appreciate even more, that you don't embrace the gospel at a point in time only. There is a a time where we need to embrace the gospel. That's what I'm inviting those of you who have never trusted Christ to do for the first time, embracing Christ at a point in time. But it's also an embracing of the gospel over time. See, for those of you who've been walking with Jesus for any number of years, you don't need him any less today than you did then. See, some of you trusted Christ coming out of a rough background, and the transformation was pretty easy to see because like you were getting high and now you're not you're like wow look at what god has done and yet fast forward a decade or so and are you in any less need of the gospel today than you were 10 years ago no your sins are just more sophisticated now you're just prideful that you're not getting high like those people as if you're not those people we are all those people and so the invitation I would give to you guys is a recognition of we don't simply embrace the gospel at a point in time. We need to continue to embrace the gospel over time. And when Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 says, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Uh, he says, um, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in this yoke of Jesus, we find rest for our souls, that's the invitation today for believers to continually embrace the gospel even today. Because I'll promise you this, you might have been saved from that old life. But if you recognized that even though you have new life in Christ, old habits are friggin' hard to break. We'll talk more about that tonight. In your small group time, I want to I wanna encourage you to have some good, honest conversations with your buddies about where you are in terms of embracing the gospel. And you might be here and have never trusted the Lord. You don't know, had never heard what the gospel is. Maybe God even now is messing with you a little bit. Hey, maybe with your, uh, in your small group discussion, maybe it's time for you to trust Christ. To finally submit and to realize that in the beginning God, not in the beginning you, we have a God who is sovereign and is the creator and he doesn't look like you. And in that, he created you in his image to be in relationship with him, but because of sin, Without embracing Christ, there's no way to get reconciled back to him. There's only one way. And so maybe you need to have some conversation about that and do the most manly thing you've ever done, manly thing you will ever do in your life, and that is submit to him. Wave the white flag and say, I need Christ in my life. And then for the rest of us, you've already trusted Christ, but what's it look like to embrace the gospel today? Are you still leaning into his power? Are you still leaning into him? Do you still need him today to help you walk out this Christian life? We'll talk more about the battle of living the Christian life tonight. But I wanted to give you some things to think about. Let me pray for us and we'll wrap it up. Father, I am so thankful for this gospel. And uh, even, even praying that, it just seems so trite because the gospel is so incredibly powerful. And I'm thankful that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that we don't need to soft pedal the gospel. We don't need to bait and switch. We don't need to create a bunch of emotion. We don't need to manipulate guys into making a decision. Because, God, you don't need an assist. And so we simply present it. And pray that men here would be stirred if they have yet to trust in Christ to recognize a God who created them and loves them and died on the cross in their place and is ready to transfer into their account once and for all the righteousness of the living God. And all of their sin would be transferred to him that he on the cross died for all of the nonsense that has been our flesh. Past, present, and future. And he invites us into his easy yoke Because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And we were created to be in relationship with him. And so I pray for our brothers here, that there would be just a a sense of acknowledgement and gratitude of the gospel, the good news that saves and sustains. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.